Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Most leaders that I know believe that they actively encourage their teams to speak up, to give feedback, to offer new ideas, to come up with creative solutions, and to challenge the status quo. And they will do things like have an open door policy, and every time they have a chance to speak, whether it's a town hall or a smaller meeting, they will say they want to hear from people. Yet, in just about every organization I work, very few people have the courage to speak up. So the question for today is why? And a more important question for you as a leader, what are you doing to kill the courageous culture in your organization? And better still, what can we do about it? So my guests today are Karen Hurt and David Dye, who are authors of a brand new book that I am big, high fan of, big fan of, called Courageous Cultures, How to Build Teams of Micro-Innovators, Problem Solvers, and Customer Advocates. Now, Karen has just been named as Inc.'s um, most innovative leadership speaker on that list, and she's one of American Management Association's 50 leaders to watch. She's been working worldwide on getting breakthrough results without losing your soul as a leader. She's also written some other books, um, one called Winning Well, A Manager's Guide to Getting Results Without Losing Your Soul, Overcoming an Imperfect Boss, and Glowstone Peak. And I think she's co-author on all of those with David Dye as well. I should say that Karen started her life as an executive in um, customer service outsourcing, and she was working at Verizon Wireless. So she's got a lot of experience in what it's like to be there on the ground trying to do it. David, David Dye, also works with leaders around the world to achieve breakthrough results without losing their soul or their mind in the process. An important thing, I think, especially in today's day and age. He, too, is a former executive and elective official with over two years, two decades of experience leading teams, building organizations, and working with boards of directors. And David is known for his optimism for making difficult concepts understandable and for moving leaders to immediate practical action. All of that speaks to me. So, David and Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. It's a pleasure. I am very excited about this book and about what you have to say. But before I start on the technical aspects of what's in the book and what it means and what do we do and how do we create courageous cultures, you've written multiple books. What started you on this particular journey for this book? Was there an observation that launched, you know, your questions? Wanda, absolutely. You know, as we were working in organizations really around the world and across a variety of industries, we were noticing a consistent pattern. We would go in and be working at the very senior levels of organizations, and we would hear things like, you know, why am I the only one who comes up with ideas? You know, why don't my employees speak up? Why don't people share their best practices with one another? And then... We would go in and be working at the front line of those very same organizations, and we would hear things like, ah, no one really cares about my ideas, or the last time I spoke up, I got in trouble. Nothing ever happens anyway, so why bother? 
I thought, are you working for the same company? So these employees have ideas. Most leaders really do want to hear them, and somehow there was a disconnect. So we set up to partner with the University of North Colorado Social Research Lab on a fairly extensive research study that was both quantitative and qualitative to get underneath this dynamic and to figure out what was preventing people from having cultures where people really do feel encouraged and want to speak up and are sharing their best practices and what was getting in the way. Right. That so resonates with me with what I see. And it reminds me particularly of a company that I worked with several years ago, a manufacturing business. New CEO comes in. New CEO wants to run a more empowered organization where ideas bubble up from the organization, where people take accountability and ownership and, you know, kind of feel like they are they own the company as well. So they have that sort of mindset, entrepreneurial mindset. I watched him over 18 months get frustrated after frustration after frustration that people wouldn't come forth. And I think there were two parts. One was he was inheriting a company from a CEO who had not actively encouraged that kind of speaking up culture. But I'm betting you would tell me if you were watching him, there was a bunch of things he was doing that was discouraging it. So tell me a tiny bit about the research. So you did this um, both qualitative and quantitative to try to understand what's preventing the culture of speaking up. You know, what kind of companies did you study? How many were they? Just give me a little bit of background about how extensive this work was. Sure. As we were looking at this, this gap that was going on in the future of work, you realize the competitive disadvantage that organizations are going to experience if they don't solve this. So we worked with uh, our deep, de- uh, deep dive case studies were across a number of different industries from healthcare to uh, defense contractors to large finance organizations, a whole wide range. Uh, and then we also did the quantitative research, you know, with surveys and so forth, asking, you know, over thousands of respondents about their uh, perspective on some of these questions. And so, you know, but some of the things that came out of that were just fascinating. When, when you talk about the executive who inherited uh, his team and his organization and the culture wasn't what he wanted, there's two things going on there. One is, yes, there is the historical culture and that sense that people have of, well, I tried this and this is what happened. So I'm never doing that again. And psychologists, as you get into the research, uh, talk about overweighting the, the negative past that we've experienced. And then we tend to discount the future. Uh, we underestimate the positive benefit that can happen as a result of what we share. So as a leader, if you're trying to get these voices and get these ideas bubbling up, those are some of the immediate things that you're up against. Then on top of that, you've got um, the way that people feel about what's going on, regardless of what you think as a leader. So for instance, uh, in our research, 49% of the respondents said that they are not regularly asked for ideas by their leaders. And then you've got uh, over just over two-thirds, 67%, who said, you know, my managers are stuck in their way of thinking. They, they operate under the principle of this is the way we've always done it, the way we're always going to do it. And then there were 50% that said, you know, if I were to contribute an idea, nothing's going to happen. And we found that to be the case, even in organizations whose senior leadership really believed differently and really did, as the executive that you, ma- you mentioned, uh, wanted those ideas. Yeah, yeah. I see that ladder also lots and lots and lots of times because I'll be working with the top team. 
the team will say, well, we'd like to hear from people in the organization about what they think should make a difference. Um, there's a great effort, you know, organized for people to bubble up ideas in kind of a structured and formal way. So it feels like it's contained and it's safe and it's got a whole bunch of stuff. And the senior leadership team will actually even love the ideas. But it is like pulling teeth to get them to understand how important it is to go back to those folks with ideas and say, what did you take away? Yeah. Yeah. Very, very true. That's uh, what we call respond with regard in the book. And, (laughs) you know, I think that's really it. And it was interesting because one of the case studies that we did was with this large financial institution. And they were actually had a beautiful suggestion system. I mean, it was really fancy. Yeah, getting tons. And it was really based on social media kind of things. You could like it and escalate it. It was really, really neat. And then we said, oh, wow, you, this must be a best practice. Your employee engagement surveys must really say that you value people's opinions. And they're like, yeah, not so much. And we said, well, why is that? And they said, you know, the thing is, um, a lot of the ideas that we get, about half of them, are something that are already implemented. And um, so we said, oh, well, okay, so did you go back and tell them? that they're they already implemented, thank them, and if your idea was so good, we're already doing it? Oh, no. <laughs> so these ideas were going seemingly going into a black hole. And so, you know, just the simple closing the loop, thank you for your feedback. Did you know we're already doing this? Here's where you can find more information about what's already in play. And here's where we'd love another idea. While you're thinking about how we can be better, let's keep that momentum going. Okay. I, yeah, I can't reinforce how many times I see this. You know, you just pound and pound and pound and pound the importance of going back to people, whether it's interviews or focus groups or idea suggestions or complaints or something, letting people know you actually heard it, even if you can't act on it. I have to tell you my second favorite story, which is, again, a number of years old, and this is a telecommunications company that I worked with. A young guy just out of graduate school in engineering has learned a particular technology that he thinks is hugely applicable for what they are doing at this telecommunications company. He puts together the pitch. He convinces his boss that it's a, you know worthy of taking it to the top management team. He finally gets a slot to present his idea to the top management team. And lo and behold, it doesn't go so well with the top management team. You know, any number of reasons why his first presentation of them, perhaps, their lack of understanding, perhaps, maybe he didn't have it presented as well. Who knows? But the top management team just didn't get it and kind of said, thanks, but, you know, go away. Hopefully kindly. Um, and his boss walks out of the room with him and puts his arm around his shoulder, so two men and in a part of the world where that would have been acceptable behavior, and says, I'm really disappointed in you. Five years later, that guy is still telling that story, and he says, by the way, I got out of that group as fast as humanly possible. And three years later, what was the hottest technology that our competitors were embedding? Exactly the idea I proposed to senior management. So I I know his boss didn't mean it that intensely, but boy, was that a lost opportunity. That guy's never going to try it again. I bet you find the same thing. Right. Yeah, and that is really, you know, interview after interview, we found people telling us stories like that, and that's, I mean, that's an extreme story. And we said, well, how long ago was that? And sometimes people would say, well, no, 10 years ago. Well, was it at this company or somewhere else? 
oh, no, it was in another company. But, you know, I learned my lesson, right? And so they're holding on to those negative experiences. So that's why we have to be so deliberately, deliberate and proactively, you know, letting people know it really is safe and that you really do want their ideas. Yeah, I and easier to say. So we've been talking about this in terms of stories. Let me get back and do a little more systematic download. So if we go back to the companies, the organizations that you surveyed, the qualitative and quantitative analysis, kind of what's the key finding? Why don't people speak up when they see a problem or when they have an idea? Well, it's that combination of uh, some of the things that we mentioned in terms of leaders aren't asking regularly, uh, that people assume or have reason to think that their managers are not interested in doing things differently. Um, they feel like they're not, uh, their idea is not going to be used or implemented, that nothing will change. Uh, and one uh, finding that was surprising to us, 56% of folks, we said, you know, if you've got an idea uh, and you didn't share it, why wouldn't you share it? And of all of the options the number one most frequently selected 56% of people said, because I wouldn't get credit. And, you know, when you think about the loss of productivity and uh, revenue and employee experience and customer experience and customer retention that all of these ideas uh, represent, it's just crushing. Because when you look at the range of, when you talk about what are these ideas that people have, you might think, oh, it's, you know, improve the, when we were having physical break rooms to do that, or, you know, or let's get uh, food gift certificates mailed to all of our remote workers. Those were not the ideas. The idea is the top three things they would do is that they would improve productivity, improve the employee experience, and the customer experience. And so you've got ideas that go straight to the bottom line for any organization and give you a competitive advantage if you can harvest them and invest in them. Wow. It reminds me so much of George Day and Paul Shoemaker's work, um, Act Fast, Act Sooner, I think is the latest title of the book. And they distinguish companies that are vulnerable from ones that are, and I'm going to forget the word for the other one. But the positive side are ones that are on the front foot and can react. The vulnerable Mm -hmm. ones find themselves on the back foot all the time. And always caught off by surprise in either a regulatory change or a change in the market or a competitive change. Just completely reacting all the time. George and Paul will say of all the vulnerable organizations they looked at, every one of them, somewhere in that organization, somebody knew about the thing that became a problem or about the technology Mm -hmm. or about the move but they didn't know yep. that senior management didn't know, and senior management didn't know who they were. So this is exactly back mm. to what you're saying, is this unwillingness to share these ideas, or the hesitation to share, I should say, is goes right to the bottom line on productivity, innovation, employee experiences, and customer experiences. It wow. sure does. And, you know, thinking about the, the future of work, as we were looking at this, at writing courageous cultures, one of the other things that, you know, you've got this shift in, in, the, in the workplace where anything that can be systematized, it's routine, that you can look to the past to figure out how to do, computers can do that. And artificial intelligence and robots are, are commoditizing all of what used to be competitive advantages and ways to distinguish yourself. Now, to your point, you want to be on the front foot? It's that creative energy and the things that computers can't do and the ability to see those things 
that only human beings can do. And if you're not leveraging every bit of human talent, ingenuity, and creativity in your organization, you're automatically at a disadvantage to an organization that does. I love that. Leverage every bit of human capability. And I think people will say that they do it. You know, we've been talking about this in terms of improving productivity, the employee experience, the customer experience, um, and innovation as well. And I think I just lost my train of thought. So never mind. I'll skip that one and we'll just go right back to the question. All right. So senior managers always say they create an open door policy. And they always say to their teams they want to hear ideas and concerns. And the lower half of the organization, as you rightly said, feels quite differently about what's welcomed. And in my experiences, both ends, the senior managers and the frontline employees, blame middle management because they feel like the middle managers are the ones that are either not passing on the ideas or are saying, get back to your day job. We've got too much work to do. Now, is it true that middle management is in the way or is everybody using them as a scapegoat rather than looking at their own behavior? Yes. <laughs> I think it's both. I think it can be both. It really depends on the organization. But we did certainly find times where um, man- middle managers were saying to their people, just keep your head down and do your work. And don't bring it up. And to your point, we're already overwhelmed. We don't need any more ideas. You know, and so that is why you really do need to do training at every level of the organization if you want to build a courageous culture. And that's been the super fun part of what we've been doing implementing this work. Uh, A number of organizations have invited us in to start this with a senior team but then move on to train the middle managers and then work at the more frontline level about, you know, critical thinking, how to position your ideas so that they can be heard, and that people really do want their ideas. And when you can have it flow from top all the way through the organization, that's where the magic really happens because you begin to loosen those any perceived roadblocks. Great. And my experience, too, I imagine you have the same thing, is if I get one group in the organization actually making a change and delivering good results and having, you know, they're, they've got great employee retention, people want to work there, recruiting costs are lower, all of that stuff, pretty soon other managers start saying, I want a piece of that, what are they doing? And then it can spread once you see the impact of the results. Okay, so let's say now I'm a leader whether at the top of the organization or somewhere in the middle of the organization. And I really genuinely believe in my heart of hearts, I really do want the ideas and the suggestions and even the concerns. Is there a good way to ask and a bad way to ask? And can you educate me about what's good and what's not so good? Certainly. So in the not so good, let's start there. The default for people who are well-intentioned, as you mentioned earlier, is that open door policy. And of course, an open door policy is a a vital uh, resource or, you know, dealing with harassment or, or the toxic courage crushers that are going on in an organization need to have that, that in place. But as a way to innovate and build the future, the problem with an open door is that the best ideas rarely walk through the open door. That still takes the initiative effort, and sometimes people don't even know where you need a great idea. So the best way to ask is to get very clear yourself about where you need a great idea. So begin with that clarity about what is strategically most important. If I could get two or three amazing ideas, what would they accomplish? And then to ask your people what we call courageous questions. And a courageous question differs from kind of the generic, hey, if anybody has any thoughts on how we can improve, I'm all ears, 
You know, that's a very generic passive approach. A courageous question is specific and it's vulnerable. It's specific in honing in directly on, on, a, on, a, on a specific area, and then it's vulnerable because it assumes that progress or improvement is possible. So if you ask us, for example, a specific and vulnerable, courageous question might be like right now, how can we improve our commitment to racial equity in our organization? Well, that's a very specific topic, and it's vulnerable because it assumes improvement is possible. If another example, uh, Don, who runs a call center that we were speaking with, he said, one of my favorite ways of doing this is I will ask my people, what's one of our policies that just sucks? And he's got frontline, uh, you know, customer-facing reps who are hearing all day long about uh, policies that don't make sense to the customer. So they're able to say, oh, well, you know, here's one that I'm hearing frequently that's not making sense. And then he can start to do something with that. And then just another example, I just read yesterday, uh, uh, former Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, when he was a, a general, he would be visiting the frontline troops and he'd say, you know, how's it going? And his Marines would give him the classic, hoorah, you know, living the dream, that kind of thing. And he'd say, nonsense. And that wasn't the word that he used in the situation, but he'd say, nonsense. I know there are things that we can do better. How can I improve your life and your ability to execute our mission? Give me something to fix. That's specific. How can improve? And sometimes it was as simple as sending a truck 300 miles to get toilet, toilet paper for everybody. So those are specific and vulnerable, courageous questions that invite people to truly contribute because they make it clear you really do want answers. You really do want to hear what could be better. Okay. All right. Now, that also presumes, though, that as a leader, I don't already have the idea about what I want to do. I'm just going through the motions. And two, that I am genuinely willing to take time to listen to it. Yeah, it does. And if you already have an answer and you already know what you're doing, going through the motion of asking for input is a waste of time and it actually lowers your credibility because you're inherently not going to respond to the ideas you're hearing. Uh, And so if you already know the answer and you've got an intent, then that's a different story. You want to be communicating that intent. Here's what we're doing. Uh, and getting real clear about that. And then if you do uh, have opportunities to ask for input on how that can be more effective, great. But, yeah, don't play that game. That, that Yeah, so what we've really found is that it's a, it's a dance between clarity and curiosity. So you really want to be perfectly clear. This is where I need ideas. And I really do like your ideas. And then showing up curious and then using some of the techniques to dig underneath and get people feeling safe to contribute those ideas. You know, it's interesting in our workshops that we've been doing with folks, what we've learned along the way is not to keep it too open-ended. You know, like to start, like a couple of years ago when we were doing this work, we would start very generically and say, oh, okay, so let's, let's use these tools and we'll figure out where, um, what ideas do you have? And now what we found is give us, and we just did one of these workshops yesterday. It was like, it worked so well. 75 minutes, we came up with five amazing strategic ideas. But we get, we asked the the CEO for five strategic areas that she really wanted input. And she thought well and hard about that. Then she sent a quick little video out explaining to everybody in advance why those ideas were so important, right? So connecting what's why. And then we worked with their teams in, in breakout groups over Zoom, you know, and whiteboards and all that to really use our tools to flesh through those ideas. And it was just amazing how quickly and how creative these ideas were. So 
these ideas were already there, right? They, they, they were buried there somewhere. And it was just a matter of deliberately asking and pulling them out. Right. Well, and I find, too, when you get a group of people together to explore an idea, like a strategic area, you know, somebody has a half-baked idea, but when they say it out loud, it starts to get more solid. And other people pile on, and it gets more solid and better and stronger and more understandable. So there's something about that team process of talking to each other around a, a topic that I think makes a huge difference. Um, I just want to highlight. Well, I think of, so. Yeah. So it's interesting. I was just thinking, you know, and also making sure that you are creating an environment of encouragement. Yeah. Yesterday, in yesterday's session, one of the women and one of the breakouts said, you guys, this may seem really myopic, but, you know, my boyfriend's grandma, and then explain what their boyfriend's grandma was dealing with. And that, her, her being safe enough, feeling safe enough to say that really uncovered a whole new market where they might need to explore, which was fascinating to me, right? But you have to be safe enough for her, for this, you know, young millennial to be able to raise her hand and talk about her boyfriend's grandma. Right. Right. And that's where a diversity of perspective becomes so powerful. I'm going to come back and um, we're going to take a break in just a couple minutes. And I want to come back to that idea about how do I create that kind of environment and what else do I do as well as just being able to ask questions. I just, people who listen to my podcast regularly know that I am a big proponent of getting smarter questions. We always ask these loose, generic, so how are you doing? To which everybody knows the answer is fine. And it doesn't get very far. And so tell me what you think also doesn't get very far. So I love that you're saying we have to ask questions with greater clarity. I just have to have one story on this. One of my favorite CEOs that I've ever worked with, John, says, you know, you want to be, you get credibility with whoever it is that you're leaving, leading. What you need to do is to solve problems, to fix stuff. And he said, if you don't know what to get, needs to get fixed, ask your employees. They have an uncanny way of telling you what it is that needs to get mm. fixed. And it's exactly what you're saying here is if you really want the ideas, the concerns, the problems, the competitive intelligence, you have to ask, but you have to ask in a way, I love you say, clear and curious. I'm clear about where I want to hear and what I want to hear about, and then I'm curious and I'm going to create an environment where people can show up in a really good way and feel safe in that environment. So perfect opportunity to take a break. My guests today are Karen Hurt and David Dye. The book that we're talking about is Courageous Cultures, How to Build Teams of Micro-Innovators, Problem Solvers, and Customer Advocates. And when we come back, I want to dive a little bit more deeply into the tools that you're going to need to get people to speak up, including creating that environment that's going to be safe. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? 
For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Karen Hurt and David Dye. The book that we're talking about is Courageous Cultures, How to Build Teams of Micro-Innovators, Problem Solvers, and Customer Advocates. Um, And I should also say that Karen and David's website is called letsgrowleaders.com. All sorts of tools and access to them and additional online training that they're doing as well. So a great spot to go for more information. In addition, we've been talking about how do you create that culture where people are willing to speak up and that just saying the generic, I want to have your ideas or your concerns, often doesn't go very far. That We need to ask a question, an area of focus, where we genuinely want to hear um, other people's thoughts. And we have to create an environment where people feel safe enough to actually tell you what they're thinking. For example, willing to say my boyfriend's grandmother has this particular problem and that leads to some potential discussion about solutions and product offerings. So let me go back to the question I teased at the very last, which is what do we have to do to create an environment where it feels safe enough for people to actually really say whatever is on their mind? Yeah. So it really, we we start with what we call navigating the narrative. And this is really getting clear about your own willingness to speak up. Because if if your team is watching you and you're saying, yeah, I want your idea to speak up, and they're watching you play the political game and not really share your best ideas or watch your boss say something that you you know is wrong and you let it go, right? They, they are going to pay more attention to what you are doing than what you're saying. So one of the things that we do is we do a, what we call a courage map, where we get people to think back on their past moments of courage, a time that they did speak up or did do something uncomfortable, and what were the values that were at play there, and how did they feel afterwards, and getting people to map that. And the reason that we do that is that to remember that people are more likely to remember a negative experience than a positive one. So If they've got a lot of negative history, we want to also bring some of those positive moments to the forefront because nothing builds confidence more than past success. So that's that's part of it. You know, and then there's also continuing with this theme of how you as a leader are showing up 
And some of this, if you really want to create a psychologically safe environment on your team, is to demonstrate that safety yourself because you're in that privileged position. And so just a, a quick example of this, we were working with a, um, a large technology company and a senior leader who was our sponsor who, had, who brought us in. Uh, before we started our program, he took time, and this is completely remotely done, to talk with all of his skip-level leaders about his experience of the pandemic, uh, not just organizationally, and he's been dealing with it internationally since its very early days in China all the way through, but then also how it affected him personally and the fears and concerns that he's had for his partner, for his children, uh, and and so on, and in all of those different ways in the middle of the night phone calls from different regions and, and the concern he's had for his people and his leaders and just the stress that that's carried. And that vulnerability, I mean, it was a remote, you know, uh, video conference. And if you could have heard a pin drop on a remote conference, you would have heard an electronic pin drop. Everybody was so keyed in to the way that he was sharing his heart and showing up authentically. And in doing that, he created space for everyone on his team to show up the same way. And we experienced that over the next two days of the workshop that we were leading. And what he after he shared that vulnerability, he said, so here's what we're going to do next. I need your best ideas about how we can not just survive, but thrive in the next 18 months. So, they, you know, they're going to believe it, that yeah. he means it, because and he, he was broke, so vulnerable. Yeah, and then he broke it down into specific areas. You know, how do we engage our remote workers now in ways that aren't going to burn them out, but are going to maintain our strategic objectives and in a whole slew of different areas they got very specific about. All right. So that's right. one way. And then another way is what we call a fear forage. And this one is a tool that we actually discovered by accident. So we were working with uh, doing some strategic planning work at an offsite, and it, it, there were five brand presidents in the room. So there were you know five very senior folks, and then in addition to that, the people who were in the succession planning pipeline to be in line next for those positions. So 20 pretty senior folks working on a really strategic problem. And as I was facilitating this conversation, you know, Wanda, when you just get a sense like people are not talking about what they really need to be talking about here, oh, but I yeah. didn't know what it was. <laughs> so yeah. I, I got, went to my purse and I got out a stack of index cards. And I handed them to everyone in the room, and I said, on the front of the card, please write an H and tell me your biggest hope for this project. And then on the back, write an F and your biggest fears. And then I collected the cards, so I made it anonymous, right? And then I began to read the cards out loud. Now, the hopes were all the things that were plastered on the easel paper that was all around the room. That's why we were there, right? Everybody was aligned on the why we were doing this project. What was fascinating was the fears. And so I began to read them one by one. I do not trust the people in my organization to do what they, uh, my peers here, to do what they say they're going to do. I do not trust that uh, we are going to really execute on this. I feel like I'm the only one who's going to do this. Every single person in that room was worried that the other people in the room weren't going to do what they said. If we had not gotten that out in the open, and had that conversation, the rest of the two days would have been a complete waste of time. So <laughs> sometimes, you know, one of the things you need to do when you want to make it safe is to figure out how to get the conversation about the fears in the room. 
And, you know, we'll do this right now with our virtual programs. Uh, you know, we have something we call our Let's Go Leaders Learning Lab, but it, which it's just a, a, way, a way to micro, you know, do like micro engagement. So one of these micro engagements before the session begins is we say, what are your biggest hopes and fears for the next 18 months? And that gets texted to their phone and then people text it back and we collect them and it's anonymous. And then we can mm-hmm. share. And you know what? There is always an exhale with the fears yeah. because the fears are also similar. Right? And so now we can talk about, okay, so let's, you know, let's have a direct conversation about this is real. So what are we going to do? And do they come, I mean, in, with this group in particular, so it's clear they're all afraid everybody else is not really committed in one form or another. And when you put that on the table, I know the power of putting it on the table because now we're talking about what's really going on in the back of people's minds and what's keeping them from 100% engaging. But is talking about it enough? Do people then realize, oh, wait, that's a little foolish? Or what happens with that? Then you have to take it. Yeah, yeah that's a really good question. And I know you know the answer to this because this is the kind of work that you do all the time. And, you know, it's um, you know, so much about this is then saying, all right, so what are we going to do about it? Are we willing to go there? Can we always say, can you get there from here? Can we get there from here? You know, and because if teams really don't believe, you know, if there's so much baggage and they say they can't get there from here, that's a whole other conversation. And part of that journey is to build small wins and practice, like, very rigorous accountability around it so that you can start building momentum and saying, all right, here's our commitment to one another one week out on this initiative. Here's our commitment four weeks out. And at each of those milestones, the leader who's ultimately responsible for these things or the team as a whole is holding themselves accountable to say, yes, we did this. And if they didn't, to follow through on it at that point. So you start building confidence that we are going to keep our commitments to one another and that the accountability actually is going to be there. You know, all of that is part of the process that we call galvanize the genius uh, that happens in this courageous culture's uh, step-by-step process that you go through is you can come up with the best ideas and they can be game changers. And now how are we going to implement those throughout the organization? And those are the kinds of tools that you need to use there. Yeah. So what you're what you're talking about this notion of making uh, some small wins, some small mi- milestones, and a rigorous accountability for a week and four weeks. Even if people don't buy into the whole end game, you can get them to buy into that first week and let's see. Like they just do their piece in that first yeah. week, and you know one success. It just you can march people right on to accomplishing a big thing. By those little tiny steps. All right, so you have mentioned two of the seven-step process. I think I probably better step back and have you outline the whole seven-step process for creating courageous convert, uh, cultures. Yeah, so it starts with uh, uh, you know, creating clarity, right? You've got to be absolutely clear about two things. One, that you really do want ideas and what a good idea would accomplish, and we've talked a lot about that. Then it goes to cultivating curiosity, and this is where you're deliberately going out and asking for specific ideas. And then from there, um, you've, you've created clarity, cultivated curiosity, then you're going to respond with regard and let people know what you did with those ideas. And how you, how you we can dive more into what that looks like, but then you want to practice the principle. And what we mean by that is, uh, like, it's easy to understand by counterexample, but a lot of leaders will do is they'll see some team or an individual doing something that's really working well, like, oh, that's the best practice. 
And so the next day, they issue an edict that everyone is going to do that thing. And the problem is that that best practice might have been something that worked in a particular context with a certain team doing certain kind of work or with certain customers. And so it doesn't, it doesn't get traction everywhere else because it doesn't make sense. And then the leader loses credibility and they think their people are resistant to change and all the rest. Practice the principle means when you see something that's working, you dig a little deeper to find the principle. What is it that's scalable, that's replicable, or is this just a product of this specific time and context? And once you know what will work, then you can scale it. So it gives us the best uh, chance of getting traction. Then we talked about galvanize the genius and how you're reinforcing uh, and getting the clarity and building the momentum as you implement. these. Uh, you've gotten curious. Now we're going back to clarity with galvanize the genius. And then finally is uh, building an infrastructure for courage. And what we mean by that is that many times, uh, and we've worked with many organizations, there are senior leaders who will get frustrated that, that their people aren't behaving and they've done all the things, but they haven't looked at their systems. And so the way from the way that they're onboarding people to the way that their compensation is structured to the way that their, um, you know, the, the goals and things that they need to achieve in their KPIs are all of those aligned with a culture that values speaking up, solving problems, or are they accidentally incentivizing people keeping their mouth shut uh, and going about doing things the old way? And, and frequently that's the case. So what are all of those systems that need to align to make that happen? How are you training your leaders? You know, you mentioned that earlier. Lots of different things have gone to that. Right. So those are just a quick run through of some of those key steps. All right. So let's, um, I guess I want to throw it to you and let you pick, because I'd like to know some tools. You've given me some great, great tools on this courage map, on the notion that I need to demonstrate the behavior of myself, meaning that I need to show vulnerability if I want other people to do it. And this fear for it. I love that idea. What are your hopes and fears? What other tools do you think are particularly important for these step, step, these seven steps? Yeah, so one that is, this is pretty much one of my favorites, which is uh, what we call the patient perspective. And I was telling my sister about the research that we were doing, and uh, she said, Karen, I think we do that where I work. So uh, Jill is the director of rehab at WellSpan Health. And she said, you know, when we do a, uh, whenever we have to implement some kind of brand new initiative or there's some big decision to make, we always designate one person in the room to act on behalf of the patient. So, for example, if Joe is the director of IT, in that particular meeting, he's not going to be talking about anything IT related. He's only going to be thinking about what the patient would experience in this circumstance. So, so we were implementing a new in-house scheduling system. So the idea was that it was going to be transparent scheduling. So, you know, that if her team went in to do rehab on a patient, they wouldn't find an empty room because the patient was out at testing. And this apparently was solving a big problem that they had been facing. And so they were all set to go on this, and the patient raised his hand and said, I want to know my schedule, too. And everyone in the room went, oh, because you can imagine that, right, that's, that's tricky because you can't always get it right. And uh, he said, no, 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 I understand. This is a hospital. Emergencies happen. You're never going to be 100% on schedule. But right now, I don't have any visibility to my schedule. And, you know, I already feel out of control. 
I have cancer. Can you imagine if, if I knew the gist of my schedule would be that I could let my wife go home some of the time? She wouldn't feel obliged to be here all the time. She could be here at the right times to help me make the right decisions. And she said they took that perspective to heart. And they did what they implemented, what they called transparent patient scheduling. And uh, she said, it's not perfect. There's still, you know, there's still issues, but it has dramatically improved the patient experience. So, you know, that, you know, works. It could be your customers. It could be your employees, right? You can do, that would work in any organization. Yeah, it strikes me that it would work in breaking down silo behavior, too. If you designated somebody on the team to say, how is this group that's receiving input from us going to react to this? And somebody is taking that perspective in the meeting. You know, that sounds like a really good strategy for me. I like that tool. All right. Yeah, very effective. You know, we... Go ahead. Um, I was going to mention that we, you know, we touched on this in the first segment. And I think that in terms of Practical things that you can do, like today, you're listening to this, you know, right now, what can I do as soon as the show's over? The next idea that you hear, the next suggestion somebody makes, it may be off the wall. It it might not make total sense to you, but we talked about responding with regard in those three steps of gratitude, adding information, and then an invitation to continue contributing. Well, what do you do if with that, you know, it's great if they made a suggestion that we're already implementing. Okay, fine. I'm going to, hey, thanks. We're doing this. Keep thinking. Okay, that makes sense. And if it's a suggestion you can use, it's obvious. Hey, this is a great one. Thanks. We're ready to trial it. Here's where you can be a part of that. Uh, Keep thinking. But what about when it doesn't make sense? When it's not strategically aligned? Because we hear this from leaders frequently. Like, you know what? I'm getting ideas, but they don't make any sense. They're half-baked. They're off the wall. They're not thinking. They don't get it. And as a leader, when that happens, it's a critical opportunity for you. You got somebody who took the time and had the energy and did some thinking and had the courage to raise their hand. Are you going to crush that or are you going to embrace it and get more of it? And the way you do that is to say, hey, thank you for thinking about how we can be better. I appreciate that. And then you add that information. So listen, you've got a great idea here about how we can uh, attract new customers. And that's going to be important in the future. But right now, our number one strategic imperative is we have got to work on customer retention. Uh, we are hustling in this environment to continue adding value remotely in a different way, and, and we need every idea around that that we can get. And so I would love invitation. I would love to get some more of your thoughts on how we can retain customers right now. And in the future, we'll have a time to think about uh, attraction again, but right now this is where we need ideas. What do you have there? Love to hear you talk. And so, you know, when you do that, you take somebody who maybe wasn't thinking uh, well, or maybe you needed to give this some other data uh, that they didn't have access to or some competing priorities or whatever it is, and ask them to solve and think about those, that process of responding with regard, it's the fuel, it's the, it provides the energy to keep that momentum and flow of ideas coming. Yeah, right. I think we also ought to share a, a tool about uh, what if you are not the leader, but you're the one with the great idea. You know, because okay, that's hold, what hold on to that one. Hold on to that one for just a moment. I want to come back to what you just said because I want to reiterate that when somebody comes to you as a leader with an idea, a concern, anything, you want to respond with regard is the principle. And those steps are gratitude, thank you for something. 
somewhere in there, and then add information. We're already doing it. It's not our priority, or presumably, I don't quite know how that would work. I need more insight. So add information and then invite to something next. Invite to a new area. Invite to another step. Invite to a further explanation. Gratitude, add information, and invite. Okay, Karen, now over to you. What if I'm the person with the, the idea? Now what? Yeah, so one of the things that we often find is that people say, you know, I positioned this idea, and we say, well, show, tell us how you positioned it. You know, and they're like, you know, they were either overly enthusiastic or they didn't bring enough data. <clears throat> so we teach this model we call the idea model. And so help people position their ideas and say, okay, so you've got this idea. What makes this idea I interesting? Uh, meaning, how is it strategically aligned to where something that the organization needs? You know, because if you can position your idea not about what it will do for you, but what it will do for the organization, you're more likely to have a receptive audience. Next, D, what makes this idea doable? And this is particularly important right now because people are so working so hard to do the best they can with what they have from where they are at this moment. You know, these big, grand scale, let's shift our whole market kinds of ideas. There may not be a lot of energy for that. But, you know, hey, look, I think we can pull this off. And this is how. This is how it's doable. Then E, what makes it engaging? Meaning, uh, you know, who who else can you engage in this process? Um, Who are your stakeholders? And who else can you bring on board? Who else might think this is a good idea? And then finally end with a couple of A, actions, a couple of key next steps. So here's what I think we need to do next. So when we do our workshops and we bring together employees from different parts of the organization and have them work on strategic ideas, at the end, when they're pitching their ideas, they position it on what makes it interesting, doable, engaging, and actions. Brilliant. I love it. What a clever way to think about it. And to just repeat, the I is interesting, meaning how is it strategically aligned and what's it going to do for the organization, not just for me. Doable, what makes this doable, how and now. Engaging, who else can we get involved in, who else is enthusiastic, who else would like to contribute, and then A, next steps. Single actions, single next steps. What I like about that next steps is often it gives us a way to test whether this is going to work the way we think it might work. And that's a simple next step thing to do. Or maybe we need to go and gather a bit more data. Or maybe we need to test how this was done and why it didn't work before. Or those are the little actions that come right back to what you said at the very beginning, David, about building those small wins. Yeah. Okay. All right. We've got a couple minutes. I want to shift because we've been talking about this courageous culture in terms of speaking up and in terms of, you know, offering ideas or even raising concerns. But I can't resist the word courage and culture in, um, in this show because there's so many places in which courage is an issue in things like um, to stop a product that you think is flawed, to call out a mistake, which was made even by a senior person, to be the whistleblower, to give that courageous feedback, even upwards or to your direct report, to take a risk on a new position for me, the courage in this current times to be different, to be myself, to show up as who I am, and to speak out about how that is and isn't working for me. So I'm assuming your seven steps work for absolutely every one of those 
places of courage. What are your thoughts? They do in general, yes. There are are some different uh, elements of your question to draw out there. I think one of them is talking about, let's say, whistleblowing or uh, some of the, the negative things that can take place, shame, intimidation, you know, harassment, um, all those kinds of elements that if you have any of that going on in your culture, you have to take care of those first before you're going to be able to do any of the things that we're talking about. Because if people are having to use all of their courage just to show up and get through the day, they're not going to have any left to, you know, call out a potential flaw in something or, you know, to raise their hand about a potential improvement or a way to better serve the customer. You've used it all up. And so getting rid of and eliminating those and having zero tolerance for those is vital. So those are table stakes for creating a courageous culture. Then from there, uh, absolutely, uh, you know, the courage to raise your hand and say, you know, I think that there's a potential flaw in this product and we've got a regulatory issue here or, uh, you know, I've got a concern. When that is the cultural norm, it actually takes less courage. So, you know, one of the paradoxes we found is in a courageous culture, once it's built, it actually takes less individual courage to raise your hand because that's what everybody's doing. And so if that's what the group is doing, as part of psychological safety is at the group level, it's easier for any one person to do it. It's the leader's job to get the team there. Okay. So we're back to what the leader's behaviors are and what the leader is doing that creates that environment where it doesn't take so much effort and energy and psychological space to speak up, to have the courageous conversation. Okay, now I know why you call yeah. it a courageous yeah. culture as opposed to courageous conversation. I had been debating that in my head. Why do they use culture here? Because it's all about, you know, conversations. Now I know why. It's creating that environment that it gets there. Yeah. All right, you have literally a minute and a half. And I like to ask my guests about a time they got out of their comfort zone and what was the secret to their success. So um, one of you, you can pick whoever wants to answer that one, but a very tight answer. All right, David says I should go. <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting. At uh, uh, When I was at Verizon, there was a, a moment uh, where I was dealing with a very toxic leader, um, and I really, she was a couple levels above me, and my boss said, could tell I was about to give her very strong feedback, and she's like, you care about your career? Don't say a word. And, you know, there's a difference between courage and stupidity, right? Because if I had done, gone and said what I was ready to say at that particular moment, in that particular context, that would have actually been insubordination because my boss had just told me not to do it. But I needed okay. to stick to my values. So we actually happened to be in a situation where we were flying around on the corporate jet. Not what I usually got to do. So this was kind of a big day for me anyway. But I I got onto the jet, I went to the back of the plane, I pulled out my laptop, and I started writing down all of my values and what I really believed as a leader, which primarily was you can get results and stay a decent human being. You don't need to act like that. And then on that that Sunday, I went home and I uh, started a leadership blog all about how do you get results and not be a jerk. And that is what ended up becoming Let's Grow Leaders, and now it's transformed into this uh, international firm. So 
sometimes, you know, you need to do what's right for you and ground yourself in your own values, and then the path will emerge. Karen, what a great way to end the story, especially talking about having the courage to do something for yourself, even if it isn't the courage to speak up to that leader at that moment in time, which must make me smart. My guests today, Karen Hurt and David Dye, the book we've been talking about, Courageous Cultures, their website, letsgrowleaders.com, and join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.